Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. What a wonderful time of worship we have had together. And uh, let me invite you, if you would, grab your copy of God's Word. You can turn with me to the book of Haggai. And uh, if uh, you're looking for that, maybe you brought your own Bible and you're looking for that, you go to Matthew and you back up one, you're in Malachi, you back up another, you're in Zechariah, you back up one more, and then you're in Haggai. Or if you want to take a shortcut, you can grab a pew, rack out of the pew, a pew Bible out of the pew rack in front of you and turn to page 839, and uh, you will be right there. So we are continuing on in our uh, really emphasis at the beginning of the year here, not simply to have a New Year's resolution, but really to think through what it means for us to really be equipped and engaged in a faithful way as a church, what that looks like, how that should look in our own lives individually, in our life as a church together. And you can see here this morning we're going to be talking about uh, glorifying God by being equipped and engaged and seeing how that plays itself out even within the text of Haggai itself. And we saw last week in thinking about that, right, we talked about the exile and the return from exile and how God worked out all the circumstances for the people to come back into the land, and yet they had spent more than a decade and a half really focusing on themselves as opposed to focusing on the glory of the Lord. And of course, God confronted them in that, told them very specifically, is it now a time for you to live in paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Called them to consider their ways. Called them to consider their ways, not only in the sense of how God has provided, but also consider their ways and how they are going to respond. And so we pick up right where we left off, Right there in the beginning of Haggai, we're going to pick up in Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and read down through the end of the chapter in verse 15. And thinking of, okay, now that we've heard the word of the Lord and that God has confronted us right where we are and really called us to reprioritize our lives around His glory, what is that supposed to look like from here? So grab your copy of God's Word and read with me, Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and this is what we read. He says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. <clears throat> and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with them. Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Direct our hearts to glorify you. Father, we pray that you would capture our attention in this moment, that you would shape our affection, that we would live for your glory, and Father, that we would respond to your word in the way in which you have called us to. Father, help us to embrace who we are as the church, and may your kingdom advance because of it. Lord, we love you, we trust you, we thank you for Jesus, and Lord, we pray that you would teach us by your Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. So as we come back into this passage, what we really find our, ourselves in is we're really 24 days after the fact, 
right? After what we talked about last week, we had this wonderful confrontation, and then all of a sudden, we're just simply told, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, right? There's the governor. And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, he's the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. And so as the people are being described here, all of them responded, right? From top to bottom, everybody involved. And so as he's describing the people here, he's talking about the people who know the Lord, who are believers, who are trusting in Him. That as we would think about it from a New Testament perspective of those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that they had thus far avoided the issue, and yet now God has spoken and they are responding. But see, even before we get into what their response was, what we realize is that everybody involved had some aspect of a necessity of repentance. It wasn't like anybody in the room could be like, well, I'm glad y'all are getting this fixed, but I didn't really have an issue. Nobody could do that. Everybody had need of it. Not only Zerubbabel, not only Joshua, all the remnant of the people. Because we have such a tendency to prioritize ourselves. We need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We're told very plainly here within the text, Zerubbabel, Joshua, all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They did what they were told. And that the, the, even the word that's being used here and the tense that's used in Hebrew is not meant to display that they were just obeying once and it was just sort of one and done. That they went into a pattern of obedience. It was an ongoing life of obedience, ongoing action that what had God commanded, God had commanded them that we saw last week. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills. Bring wood. Build the house that I may take pleasure and be glorified. We heard the same words last week, didn't we? And I wonder if we have obeyed now. That being equipped for obedience, we're being called to action. That we are to glorify God by being equipped for obedience. And that that is not simply just where we understand the things and just sort of mentally assent to them. God is calling us to action. And that we are recognizing who it is that's actually speaking here. We are obeying the voice of the Lord our God. The creator and sustainer of all things. The redeemer who has revealed himself ultimately and most prominently as we understand him in Jesus Christ. He is has spoken. All of us have prominent voices in our lives, don't we? People that we just have a, a tendency to listen to. Sometimes those, are, those people are your parents. And even after, the, after they're long gone, you can almost still hear their voice. You pick up in patterns of life and you can be like, oh, I know what my dad would say about this. Maybe those people in your life were some, some teachers that you had along the way. Maybe they're teachers that you have right now. For some of us, it was coaches in our lives as well that just took time with us and, and, and taught us and led us. God Himself has spoken. And that in our acknowledgement of His voice and in our desire to obey Him, we are recognizing and living the fact that He knows what He's doing. He has called us not to some sort of overwhelmingly, you know, droning on sorrowful existence, but to enjoy Him 
to know Him, to walk with Him, and that He teaches us and leads us and guides us and corrects us in a way that brings Him glory and honor. In the words of Jesus, how could we call Him Lord if we don't do what He says? Those words don't even really make any sense. He is equipping us for action. So these people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. That God spoke through the prophet. It was his voice that worked through Haggai who was really the messenger. He had simply said what God had told him to say. It's a good reminder for all of us that God does not need our public relations expertise. God does not need us to sort of reformat the truth in a way that's more palatable. Take it as He has revealed it and deliver the message as He has said it. But see, we get to this point in verse 12. And it's very easy to just read this and sort of plod right through it and not think enough about the significance of obedience. We should not underestimate the significance of obedience in the life of a believer. Obedience is not what saves us. God's grace saves us. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a free gift of God so that no one may boast. But our obedience is an expression of the fact that we genuinely love Him. That we are genuinely alive in Christ. That it is evidence of genuine faith. It is an act of trust that he knows better than we do. It displays genuine understanding that we have acknowledged the truth and that we are then living out the truth. It's very easy to just sort of give mental acknowledgement to all manner of different things without actually understanding what we're doing and actually turning them into functional use. I remember in our first church out of seminary, a dear brother in Christ who... uh, Worked in a paper mill. He, he never went to college, but he, the man was a mechanical genius. And of course, we had vacation Bible school coming up, and it was like, okay, well, we need some set pieces. We need some stuff put together, and, and this guy volunteers. And he's like, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And we're like, okay, yeah. We were just thinking, you know, whatever, set pieces for vacation Bible school. It's not going to be a big thing. Oh, it was a big thing. It took up like the whole backdrop, it, a perfect arch, right? And it fit in the sanctuary perfectly. I mean, with inches, just barely between the, the ceiling and where it was. And everybody's looking at it like, this is amazing. How did you do this? Here's a man, he never went to college, hadn't been to high school in 50 plus years. And he looks at everybody and he's like, sine, cosine, and tangent. Like, Didn't y'all learn this? Like, it wasn't that hard. And of course, we're all sitting there like, yeah, I learned it, but I have no idea what it even means right now. There's no way I could functionally use it. It was amazing. But what a reminder, right, that when you genuinely understand something, it's not just conceptual knowledge where you can write out the definition on a test once, but it turns into something that's functional. This is what God is calling us to in the truth, that we would not only take it in and be transformed by it, but then we would functionally use it in our own lives, in obedience and walking with Him. We are being equipped to obey Him. You think of some of these New Testament commands that we have, not only repent and believe the gospel, but then once you do that, then what? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a command. 
Make disciples, that's a command. Boast in the Lord. Speak the truth. Be imitators of God. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Be holy for I am holy. That we would hear the truth and that it would transform us to such a degree that we would understand it. It would so grip our souls that we would then live in obedience to it. God is calling us to more than we realize as he's calling us to obey his own voice. But see, undergirding our obedience is understanding that we're glorifying God by being equipped for obedience and understanding and that he is teaching us a right understanding of who he is and then also a right understanding of the knowledge of his promise. Because he goes on, and really, in just a few words here at the end of verse 12, what does it say? It says, and the people, what? Feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. The people who? Again, we're making reference to, as we would think about it from a New Testament perspective, people who are saved by grace through faith, who are alive in Christ. And the evidence of your own salvation is in fearing the Lord. I mean, we have to, fear elicits a response. If you're afraid of spiders and one comes running across the kitchen, you're not like, oh, look at how cute that is, right? It elicits a response. When we're driving, we're afraid somebody's pulling out in front of us. It elicits a response. Fear elicits a response. They feared the Lord. And then as we think about the fear of the Lord and all of what that means, because we use this terminology a lot, it's helpful for us to slow down and unpack it a little. Because on the one hand, the fear of the Lord should lead people to repentance and faith. The fear of the Lord should lead people to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because there should be a sense of fear in the fact that the God of all creation we have sinned against We have violated his law and we are guilty according to the the stature of his own authority. The Lord over all creation, even when we think about it within the context of Haggai, the Lord over all the crops and over all of life, over all of weather, the eternal Lord, our sin offends him. And that justice demands that punishment takes place. And that the fear of the Lord should lead us before the Lord, on our knees before Him, crying out for mercy and recognizing that the only place wherein we find the mercy of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation, who lived in perfect righteousness, who died on the cross for our sin, who rose from the dead, and there's forgiveness in life in His name. That as we behold the grandeur of the glory of God and His holiness brings us to our knees in the fear of Him, we ought to be led to faith in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we also have to acknowledge that not everybody believes Christ, right? And so the fear of the Lord is going to look different between a believer and an unbeliever. And very helpfully, if you go back in history, there's some, some people who are very careful to walk through this. And you go back and you read Puritans as they describe the fear of the Lord. They're going to break it down into two different sort of sections and really on the basis of whether or not you're a believer or an unbeliever. So an unbeliever is going to think through the fear of the Lord in the sense of a servile fear. 
It's the natural tendency of the unregenerate, dead heart of man that is dead in trespasses and sins, that looks at God and thinks of who he is and fears only all of the loss or hindrance to self. This is just going to hinder the way in which I want to live my life. This is just going to be a bother to me. And that there's a sense of avoidance, there's a sense of dread, that you're just going to ru- he's just going to ruin everything about life. There's a sense of fear about him that just wants you to make him go away. And some in here may be living that, even this very moment. But see, the fear of the Lord for a believer is different. The fear of the Lord for a believer is what the Puritans described as filial fear. The fear of a child for their father, where the heart is inclined toward God, where you revere him and love him. You certainly acknowledge the grandeur of his authority and the majesty of his holiness. You acknowledge all of those things, but you also recognize his grace and his love and the transformed work in your own life and in your own heart that you're eager to please him and you want to draw close to him. You don't want to avoid him. You want to make sure that your life is in such a way that you don't want to offend him in any way because you love him so and you see him as a treasure of all treasures. That as you behold the scale and the scope of the glory of God, how you respond in that moment and what your fear looks like is a telltale sign of where your heart really is right now. Do you want more of Him to walk with Him and say, Lord, draw me nearer? Or do you look at your own life and say, butt out, get out of here? How you respond in fear here is an evidence of our own heart's position towards God Himself. But in fearing the Lord and fearing Him with this filial, this child fear, this fear of a child for their father where you see Him not as ornamental to your life but essential to everything about who you are. And that fear leads to growth that even as we talked about on Wednesday night, walking in the fear of the Lord and the church multiplied. That as we're being equipped for obedience, we are meant to have a right understanding of the fear of the Lord. And that even in this very moment as we talk about it, may God be glorified as He calls people who dread Him to come to know Him as an adopted child of His through faith in Jesus Christ. That we would live to love, honor, and joy our Lord in fear. But see, it's not just that either. Glorifying God in the sense of having the right understanding of His glory, but we also need to have the right understanding of His own promise. Because what's going to undergird all of this call to obedience? What's going to undergird this ongoing pursuit of obeying the commands that He has laid out in front of us? Look at what He says in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Haggai, not again, it's not the prognostications of Haggai. It's not, hey guys, I've got a cool name, so listen to my, listen to my voice. He's the messenger. He's just delivering the paper. He's just putting it in the mailbox. He's just pushing send or whatever on your little device. It's not his own assessment. But see, this is a recognition of the fact that in all of our thoughts and pursuits of obeying the Lord and what He has called us to, oftentimes in life we need motivation, don't we? 
We recognize that it's everywhere. You're sitting at the stoplight in your two cars back, and the light turns green, and nobody's moving. And you're like, I think we need some motivation here. What do you do? Get going. Snap out of it. You could be standing in line at the store. Maybe you're returning something. Maybe you're, you know, you're at the UPS store or at the post office or something, and things aren't moving rightly. And you, we motivate in different ways, right? Sometimes it's just like, oh, you know, just throw out one of those really loud audible sighs. Like, let's move this along. Could be sitting in a restaurant somewhere and service isn't exactly what you want. And so you start, you know, making these really big movements of, you know, hey, we're over here. I'm thirsty. We need motivation, don't we? We need motivation in our own lives to obey the Lord. We need spark plugs and gasoline. We need immediate and enduring motivation. And the messenger of the Lord, Haggai, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And what is that? Simply, I'm with you, declares the Lord. What a display of God's goodness. He's not motivating them by, it's been a decade and a half. He's not motivating them by guilt. He's not motivating them by just sort of a swift kick. He's motivating them by the abundance of his own grace. He's saying, look, I'm with you, enduringly so. And we have to think this through, that this is more than just being present. There's a difference between God's omnipresence and his being with his people. In the same way that you can be present at a little league game, but you're really only with a certain group of people. You can be present at a sporting event, but you're really only with a certain group of people, right? Right? There's a distinction there, and we should see that. And when we think about that and come to grips with that, that the grandeur of the glory of God, all of what we know of Him, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the redeemer, the savior, God Himself, who spoke all things into existence, is with us. He's with us as our refuge and strength and an ever present help in time of trouble. He himself is our hope and our encouragement and our joy. He is. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have God as our Father. What a thought that God himself looks at his people by faith in Jesus Christ, looks at his people and says, I'm with them. What an amazing reality. What a motivator for obedience, is it not? That when we share Christ, He's with us. That when we read His Word, He's with us. That when we pray, we're not simply praying to somebody who's way off. He's with us. That when we worship, when we sing together, when we stir one another on to love and good works as the church ought to, He is with us. 
The presence of God is not just a sin deterrent. It's an invitation to enjoy Him, to enjoy His holiness and enjoy His grace and peace and assurance and comfort and consolation that everything necessary that my presence and your presence lacks, He provides. That's how good our God is. That we ought to glorify God by understanding and grasping this promise He is the treasure. And that if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ crucified on the cross and risen from the dead, God is with you. Which is better than everything that we can provide ourselves. Which is better than all the ways in which the people of of the Lord, even in the beginning of Haggai, were trying to do everything themselves, trying to make it all work, focus on self. No, He Himself is the treasure. And he loves us and he saves us and he stays with us so that as we build lives of worship, as we lead one another on to be equipped and engaged in reaching the people that are around us, as we think of all the construction of the temple in the sense of a New Testament reality of shaping the glory of God and the worship of the Lord in our own lives and all the notions of things that need to be removed from our lives, he's with us. And all the ways in which we need him to provide in us what we do not have in ourselves. He's with us. The supplier is with us. Glorify him by recognizing that. That for every believer we ought cling tightly to the fact that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God's promise of His presence motivates our obedience. Because you can think, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, He's with us. You walk into the doctor's office, He's with us. You walk into that circumstance where you, you, you need to articulate the gospel with somebody that you know and love, and you fully recognize this is probably going to be an awkward conversation. The God of all creation is with you in that moment. Doesn't that motivate our obedience? Doesn't that stir our hearts to want to go make disciples, knowing that no matter where we go or what circumstance we find ourselves in, He's with us. So what are we afraid of? Glorify God by being equipped for obedience and understanding. And recognize the fact that we need Him to stir us up. We ought to glorify Him who stirs us to engage in the work that He has given us. And look at what happens in verse 14. It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. From top to bottom, the whole bunch. He is the motivator and He is the motivation. And may God Himself stir our spirits now in our own hearts That even the word itself in Hebrew is meant to give us this picture of rousing us, awakening us, stirring us to action, snapping us out of it. Get up! That God would awaken our hearts. Because it's so easy for us to get warm and cozy in the realities of our own comfort while there are frigid and forlorn hearts around us that need the hope of the gospel. It's so easy for us to just get entrenched in our own sense of wanting to be cozy and comfortable, but there's so much to do. 
There's so many ways we ought to glorify God in our sowing and sharing and reaching and maturing and growing and seeking and caring. And then in God's goodness, here it is. He is waking His people up. And that God uses His Word to rouse us from our slumber. We are not meant to nap our way from where we are into the kingdom. We're in the midst of a war. People need the gospel. That we are meant to be alert and awake and engaged in the ministry. And that we would expect God in his word to awaken us from our slumber. I can remember as a kid... Sunday morning would come around, and inevitably as a kid, I would, spend, I would stay up too late, later than I should have on a, Sunday, I mean on a Saturday night, and sure enough, Sunday morning always came. And I, whatever else happened in our house, Sunday morning, we were going to church. And I can remember the alarm would go off, and it was real easy. The alarm's going off, like, snooze, snooze, even unplug the thing, Right? I'll, I'll, I'll be ready, I'll be fine, it'll be fine, right? Some of my siblings would come in there, yeah, you got to get up, like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Then dad would show up. You could hear his footsteps coming down the hall. All he had to do was walk in the room, get up, it's over, I'm up, I'm awake. I'll be dressed in about 15 seconds to be ready to get out the door, right? Let me go brush my teeth real quick, let's go. It's different when he shows up and he awakens us. That just by his word, he speaks. And there it is. The church needs this. We need this. That God, as he speaks, our hearts would be stirred. We'd be awakened from our slumber. No more snapping the snooze. Awaken us to engage. Awake our sense of, awaken us from our sense of security because we ought to rejoice in our sense of security. But it ought to grieve us to the point of action that there are people around us within our own homes, within our own neighborhoods, that should they die today, they will go to hell. And we have not yet shared Christ with them. That ought to crush our hearts. That God would awaken us to the reality of His providence, that He has led all things together, that you have the children that you have because of God's providence. You have the spouse that you have because of God's providence. You have the work and the neighbors and all of the context to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light, that we would be awakened to the hopeless in need of hope, the broken in need of restoration, those enslaved to sin in need of redemption, those immature in need of maturity, awakened from half-hearted thoughts of God and His glory to exalting the worth and worthiness of the Lamb that was slain, whose praise we will sing for all eternity. Let us start the song now. That we do not serve a martyred Messiah. We serve a living Lord. May God awaken our hearts, all of us, and see, this cuts in every way. This is not just the governor looking at the priest being like, you really need this. Or the priest looking at the governor and being like, you really need this. Or the priest and the governor looking at the people being like, y'all really need this. We all need it. May God awaken our hearts. And when he does, look at what happens. And they came and worked on the house. Worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king.
We could tie it together with our own little words here. The having been equipped, they then engaged. God awakened their hearts for his glory. And that when he awakens us, we get to work. Focusing on the glory of God, focusing on he who deserves the praise and adoration, that there are people in our midst around us on a day-to-day basis who are not worshiping Christ, and Christ is glorious enough. He deserves their praise and their worship. So just as that, as a sheer motivation all by itself, ought to open our mouths to speak the truth as we have been commanded to do. And that at its root... What's being demonstrated is who do we actually worship? Because if you live to exalt yourself, if God is just some sort of ornament to your life that's just one of those things that you do, you're not actually worshiping Him. You're worshiping yourself. If God is just a means to an end to something else, if you think you just want to be around the Lord because maybe He'll bless you and give you a bunch of money, your God is money, not Him. He's the treasure. He's the one that's worthy of worship. He's the one that we ought to do everything in our, in our power and in our effort to serve him that he would be magnified, that we would lift high the glory of God and the significance of it. Because we see on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month and the second year of Darius the king, this is exactly what the people of the Lord did. Or we could say it another way. On September 21st of 520 B.C., that's what took place. 2,544 years ago. That's a long time ago. It's a reminder on the one hand that this really happened. But it's also a reminder that the same God who equipped them equips us. The same God who calls them to obedience is calling us to obedience. The same God whose glory was worth it then is worth it now. Hearts gripped by grace, evidenced by action. Glorify God who stirs us to engage. Because for every single one of us, no matter who you are, there's some housework that needs doing. And I don't mean at your house. I mean in the temple of our own hearts, in the worship of the Lord. That when we all have to stand before God and give an account, when the timesheets of your life are laid bare and the, count, the accounting of your time is revealed, would you be satisfied now that you have lived leveraging your life for what truly matters? Or is there room for repentance. Maybe you say, well, we all have responsibilities, and that's true. But these things are not separate. That's context for the glory of God, the worship of the Lord in our families as we train our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as we lead them to faith in Christ, as we sow the seed of the gospel in their lives and raise them up, as we live our lives in our careers, that God has put all that together, that we would proclaim the excellencies of He who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, that we would leverage our career, our retirement, everything about our lives for the glory of God. That 24 days after they first heard the message, they worked, they took it, they obeyed, and they lived. What about us? How long will it take? 
This is not saying that nothing is happening now. Praise be to God, much is happening right now in this church, and we ought to thank God for it, but there's always room for growth, isn't there? The time has come for us to respond. And maybe you're here and you're a believer, and now it's time to just lay aside all the fruitless endeavors, all the distractions, all the things that have been pulling your attention and your affection away from the Lord, and just time to lay them all down and lay your life down to engage the work that God has given you. Not saying that you have to completely repack your life, but that you would see your life as an opportunity to glorify the God who has saved you by His grace and for His glory. And perhaps by a magnificent display of the glory of God Himself, you are present here with us today and you are not yet a believer. May an overwhelming sense of the fear of the Lord come upon you. The glorious God, the good, loving, perfect, holy God against whom we have all sinned. That our sin is offensive to Him and it demands justice. It demands punishment. May I implore you today, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, flee from the wrath to come. And flee right into the hands of the merciful and gracious Jesus who lived in perfect righteousness, who was tempted to sin in every way as you are and yet never did, who substituted himself for you on the cross as he endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against your sin, that God would be just in the fact that sin is punished and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, who not only died but who rose again, who calls us everlasting life through the forgiveness of our sin. Won't you trust Him here today? However we respond, whomever you may be, may our response indicate that we've understood the message and that we aim to glorify God with our response. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You are amazing. Thank you for this passage of Scripture that you would so grip our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us to ever-increasing pathways of faithfulness. Father, that your kingdom would advance as we walk in obedience to what you have commanded us to do. Father, we pray that you would do the very thing in our midst that you did in the midst of these dear people 2,544 years ago. That your spirit would stir our hearts. Father, that you would stir the hearts of those who are here who have never yet trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that they would be convicted of their sin. They would run to Christ in faith and would have forgiveness and everlasting life today. That today would be the day of their salvation. And Father, we will glorify you for it. Father, that we would lay down the portions of our lives that do not glorify you, that are not being lived out in obedience to you. Father, that we would lay those down that you would be glorified. Father, increase our usefulness for your glory today as we all bow before you in repentance and faith. God, we ask for you to do more than we can ask or imagine in our midst now. Be glorified as we respond to you.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.